Hello and welcome back to Ethically Sourced. This week, I'm going to take a step back and talk about one of the four primary tenets of clinical medical ethics. It's honestly one of my favorites, and it is that of autonomy. So if you recall, you know, when we talk about clinical medical ethics, we're referring to generally the basic four, which are beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. For me, I think autonomy is one of the most important of these four, and it's the one that I try to emulate the most in my medical practice. Again, Ethically Sourced is a supplement to the Black Doctors podcast where I seek to provide some actionable information and items that can help affect the way we practice medicine and ensure that we develop and provide more ethically based and patient-centered care. When it comes to the principle of autonomy, first, it necessitates that there is competence and capacity, so that's already been assessed and determined that the patient has the competence to live independently and function independently and the capacity to make these medical decisions on their own. The principle of autonomy is having a respect for persons that affirms that each and every person has moral value and dignity in his or her own right. One implication of respect for persons is a respect for personal autonomy that is acknowledging the moral right of every competent individual to choose and follow his or her own plan of life and action. When we meet these patients, you know, they have choices. Um, they have choices that they make when they're faced with these different decisions about their health care and their medical treatment option. This topic is multifaceted. There's aspects of the ethical principle of respect for autonomy. There's the legal, clinical, and psychological aspect. There, it really plays a huge role in informed consent. There's the assessment of decisional capacity. Um, how are you communicating this medical information? Are you being truthful as a physician or a healthcare provider? What about when patients refuse treatment or when patients are challenging? I think it is so important to maintain and respect the autonomy of patients. When we approach patients in each clinical interaction, right, they're coming to us with their own list of values and their own priorities. Some patients have stressors within their own lives due to socioeconomic status or structural or social racism. Um, whatever history and baggage that they're coming to us with, something that we should at least try to be aware of and to acknowledge, and that is affecting the, the decisions that they're making for their own health care. So when it comes to autonomy, first and foremost, I approach my patients by trying to give them the most information possible in a way that they understand. I definitely try to avoid using jargon. Jargon and technical terminology can just function to set up a wall or an affront to patients that is a barrier to have open communication. So when I'm talking to patients, if I'm considering for a peripheral nerve block, I'm going to say, hey, I'm, I would like to do this peripheral nerve block. I'm gonna make an injection in your shoulder. I'm not gonna say I'm gonna do an infraclavicular nerve block or interscaling nerve block because chances are the patient doesn't understand the technical aspects of that procedure. And the point of informed consent is just to discuss the risk benefits and make sure that there is an understanding during that process. So I think first and foremost, breaking things down at a level that patients can understand is, is incredibly important. And that's mostly dealing with informed consent, but that's one of the first ways that patient autonomy presents itself in the healthcare setting. 
One of the more troubling interactions, it's not when patients agree to the care plans that we've developed, it's when they refuse the care plans that we develop. You know, how often do we start to question a patient's mental capacity if they refuse a surgery to remove a cancer or if they refuse to be intubated despite being, um, you know, having air hunger and oxygen saturations in the low 90s? You know, we're sitting there giving them the textbook answer and what we recommend as physicians and healthcare providers. And sometimes that does not align with the patient's wishes and it's something we need to be cognizant of. Something that we need to be able to determine, you know, first and foremost, do they have capacity? Of course. Um, But otherwise, if they have capacity, then it's okay to make medical decisions that we don't uh, agree with necessarily. It's important to note that autonomy is definitely a two-way street. So you have patients with their autonomy, then you have physicians and other healthcare workers with their autonomy. So because a patient walks in and wants their leg amputated, just because they may have a perfectly good explanation for themselves, but the surgeon has the autonomy to say, no, I refuse to remove a patient's leg. There's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, based on that surgeon's clinical judgment, and that surgeon, you know, has the ethical responsibility to do no harm. Question of whether the, the patient sees it as, as doing harm or the surgeon just sees it as doing harm. But the surgeon is not obligated to provide a surgical intervention that is not indicated based on, on their judgment. And I think this is where it breaks down because in medicine, we can do so many things. We can do a lot of stuff. But should we do a lot of the things that we do? And that's the question. And it really comes down to the physicians that are boots on the ground to have these difficult conversations with patients and be able to navigate these different uh, clinical scenarios. Most hospitals have an ethics board that's available for consultation, but so many times a lot of these decisions don't necessarily need to go to the ethics board to reach a solution. Sometimes you have to get comfortable having those uncomfortable conversations and reaching those uncomfortable solutions. When it comes to autonomy, you know, you have to identify the parties involved. There is some aspect of state and local laws that may need to be enforced. And then there is also local hospital policy. For example, when it comes to surgery or the local policy of my hospitals, we need a pregnancy test. We need a urine pregnancy test. However, if the patient autonomously decides that they don't want to take a urine pregnancy test before surgery, then I would still provide care to that patient after I counsel them on the risk and benefits of potentially receiving anesthesia or surgery with the potential to be pregnant. So I think, you know, respecting autonomy sometimes just means that we have to modify our informed consent process and then you can keep it pushing. I'm a huge advocate for autonomy between the healthcare team as well. And, you know, people need to be able to speak up when they feel uncomfortable or or feel that their ethics are being violated. So often the way the healthcare system works is that, you know, there's a, a ball that starts rolling. So, you know, I hate to pick on surgeons, but they are the captain of the ship, essentially. So if you have a surgeon that's willing to operate on X, Y, or Z, Chances are you're going to be able to find an anesthesiologist that is willing to put that patient to sleep and provide care. Uh, Once you have an anesthesiologist and a surgeon on board, then you're rolling to the operating room. You have a circulator nurse, you have a scrub tech, 
um, maybe another um, scrub nurse or, or first assist or physician assistant. But the momentum's already been generated and we are in there to provide this patient care. And we're going to chop that leg off even though there's nothing wrong with it, right? But at some point, somebody, if they feel uncomfortable, should step up and say, hey, I don't understand why we're doing this. And then that should either receive a response from the surgeon or the patient or that that uh, dilemma should be addressed and rectified. If a patient, for example, wants their leg removed for no physiologic reason and there's a surgeon that feels it's ethically appropriate to do so and then you have an anesthesiologist that is okay with putting that patient to sleep and you have a scrub nurse and etc down the line and everybody's cool with it then sure i guess proceed but there needs to be an occasion for staff involved to voice their opinions to voice their concerns and those concerns should be listened to and addressed these come up so often uh when it comes down to pediatric care because peds are kind of a special population and they're oftentimes protected by different laws, um, child endangerment laws and child protective services. And that is definitely a tricky situation and, and where, you know, we benefit from our pediatric colleagues who do receive more training in this because they're exposed to it. And then there's the ethics board at their disposal as well. Um, if that situation arises. I can't directly speak to that because I haven't really been involved on that side of the fence when uh, Child Protective Services or, or that system. But I'm, I'm sure in pediatric hospitals across the country, this is, is not a rare occurrence. When it comes to Jehovah's Witness, this is a topic that comes up again and again. And there is really no um, black and white answer when it comes to providing care to patients that ascribe to Jehovah's Witness re- religion. And, you know, I was fortunate to take care of quite a few of these patients during my residency. We actually had a um, cardiac surgery program that provided care and was a resource to the Jehovah's Witness community. So, you know, done quite a few open heart surgeries for, Jeho- for uh, Jehovah's Witness patients, even some transplants, uh, believe it or not. And You know, the only thing that entails is, again, the informed consent process. So different facilities typically will have some kind of worksheet. And if not, you should consider creating one for the facility you work at where you can kind of go through and discuss the discuss with the patient. You know, what are your concerns? um, What are your concerns about receiving blood products? What blood products are okay based upon your religious preferences or beliefs? and what is not okay. And it really just comes down to taking the time to have that conversation and in a non-judgmental fashion, just take note of this patient's preferences. Within a thorough informed consent where, you know, are you okay to die if you don't receive these uh, blood products? Every patient is different. I've had Jehovah's Witness patients that were okay receiving cryoprecipitate. Some were okay receiving platelets. Some wouldn't take albumin. Some would only take crystalloid. It really demands a conversation with each patient that you provide care for. And then that goes back to the anesthesiologist and the surgeon. So if a patient comes in who's refusing blood product and their hemoglobin is ridiculously low, like six, and they need open heart surgery, well, then the surgeon may or may not say that this 
patient is a surgical candidate. And if you feel that you need to speak up, then you should have the opportunity to do so. We all need to kind of ask ourselves as we get into the situation of providing care, or at least I did, you know, as an anesthesiologist, because there are certain times where it's not risk adverse. There's a chance that this patient could exsanguinate and die on the operating room table in front of me. And I always bring that to the patient's attention. Are you okay to, is it, is it okay to give you blood products if we need to save your life? If they say no, I'll probably ask some follow-up questions, but then I'll document that and I am perfectly okay with abiding by their wishes. I know um, even speaking with certain colleagues, I have colleagues that would not and would still administer blood products in those cases or would refuse to provide care for that patient and defer to someone else that was willing to abide by the patient's wishes. All these are conversations that just need to be had prior to proceeding with care. When it comes to pediatric patients and Jehovah's Witness, you know, for minors, you don't need parental consent to administer blood product if indicated for the child. Well, I'm sure there's some legal stuff and hospital policy and all that, but at the end of the day, parents are not able to withhold that life-saving treatment and care, especially in the acute setting. You know, this gets tricky when it's no longer acute and now you're post-op and it's in kind of a more controlled or chronic setting where you actually have time to parlay and discuss these clinical decisions. You know, uh, autonomy is the word that is so important when it comes to women's rights. When it comes to women's rights, as you know, as well as a woman's right to choose what happens to their own body. So again, I'm a firm advocate for patient autonomy and I provide the care that the patient I have in front of me needs. You take this a step further and go on with the end of life issues because this is so important. End of life, death with dignity, physician assisted suicide. You know, you pull the crowd, you're gonna get different opinions from different physicians and different providers. But honestly, you know, with some caveats, patients should be able to make even the ultimate clinical decisions for themselves. It's my personal opinion. Um, and I hope that, you know, as time goes by, we become a little more progressive and you know, some of the, the policies and procedures from out west start to spread further across the country. You know, we'll, we can begin to see more autonomy in these areas as well. To circle back around to, you know, so you have patient autonomy, then you have the autonomy of clinicians. When you're running a code, for example, because I see this so frequently with junior residents, when you're running a code, you know, you don't need to run a code for 45 minutes and then request permission from the family to terminate the code. As a physician, that is your responsibility to proceed down the ACLS algorithm. You run your H's and T's, you per perform all the steps for resuscitation, and when appropriate, if additional care is futile, you're, it's your responsibility to, to call the code and compressions, etc. Um, it's recently in a situation where uh, patient was coding and, and they kept going until they kind of asked a family member, is it okay if we stop? That's not great, right? Because now you shifted the responsibility of this incredibly huge decision to a family member who is not in the field of medicine. And it's just a lot of responsibility for them to make this decision with little um, data and less of a medical education, right? So as physicians, you know, we've been through medical school and it is now our job to make these sometimes difficult clinical decisions. You say, what about patient autonomy and the patient whose mental status is waxing and waning? 
So for these patients, ideally you're able to catch them in a period of time where they have their mental faculties and you're able to discuss uh, these long-term decision-making um, and, and see what their goals of care are, what their life goals are, what their concerns and interests are. This is the perfect time to really confirm who is the medical decision maker, who is the power of attorney, who is supposed to provide the substituted judgment for making medical decisions when the patient is unable to do so for themselves. So a lot of these situations, if you plan ahead and kind of get ahead of the curve and not get stuck um, in, in a situation where you don't know what to do or who to turn to. I will always maintain that, you know, patients are allowed to make medical decisions or make decisions in their care that I don't necessarily agree with. You know, right now we're looking at the COVID vaccine. So Pfizer, Moderna, and I guess Johnson & Johnson is available in emergency use authorization. And although I am an adamant supporter of us getting vaccinated as quickly and as soon as possible, the most people that we can vaccinate, everybody needs to get vaccinated. You know, I have to respect the autonomy of the patients I encounter. Now, it's not pure and simple autonomy, but it is these patients making an informed, a truly informed decision, understanding the risk and benefits. If we've gone over risk and benefits of a procedure, of a vaccination, of whatever the medical decision is, I encourage that patient to make an autonomous decision, whether I think it's good or bad, and will go from there with their care. Fortunately, medicine has improved to the point where we're able to make these decisions. You know, back in um, the days where with enslaved people across the country, they had no autonomy. They were bought and sold as property and they were experimented on and they weren't given the option to refuse or make decisions on their own behalf. So, you know, medical apartheid, as I've covered before, Henrietta Lacks, they never had this opportunity to have autonomy. So it's such an incredible place that we're at now where at least we all have autonomy and we're always looking to move forward in this field of medical ethics and providing good, competent, and fair medical care. So what are your thoughts on autonomy? You know, what are the limits of which, you know, when do you revert to paternalism in your medical practice. These are all kind of concepts that I encourage you to think about before they present themselves. I um, would love to hear your thoughts and comments. You can either comment here on, um, you know, Apple Podcasts, leave a review, or you can comment on the Black Doctors Podcast Instagram page, send us a message, we'll review, we can answer those questions online. Thank you so much for listening and tune in for Monday's episode of the Black Doctors Podcast. All of the month of March, we're celebrating Women's History. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk with you soon.